0: So here's some exciting news. Our podcast, Creating Our Own Lives, Cool for Short, has just launched its second great season on humor as a tool for survival. On Beings, Lily Percy is speaking with 15 different voices on the surprising ways humor shapes us and brings meaning to our lives. Insights from writers, comedians, political and financial reporters, a sex educator, and a rabbi, starring voices like Margaret Cho, Hari Kondabolu, Terry McMillan, Sam Sanders, and Lindy West. Find Cool on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite shows. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic
1: research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind.
0: Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I love finding extraordinary people, well-known in their fields, but hidden from many of the rest of us. Learning about such people, hearing from them, can shift our own world a little bit on its axis. Enrique Martinez Salaya is a world-renowned painter who trained as a physicist. A philosopher's questioning and a physicist's eye shape his original approach to art and to life. One critic has described his art as an effort to discern a deeper order that underlies what is obscured by the appearances of disorder. Enrique Martinez Celaya poetically speaks of the whisper of the order of things. He says that works of art that speak to humanity across time possess their own form of consciousness and that a quiet life of purpose is a particular form of prophecy.
1: There's a tendency for us to think that to be a prophet or to do anything grand, you have to have a special gift, be someone called for. And I think ultimately what really matters is the resolve to want to do it, to give your life to that which you consider important. And if you have no skills to offer or nothing special to offer, it's all the more amazing that you do it, the more remarkable
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Enrique Martinez Celaya's art has been exhibited around the world, from the Hermitage in Moscow to a collaboration with the Berlin Philharmonic. He grew up in Cuba, Spain, and Puerto Rico. He studied engineering, physics, and quantum electronics at Cornell and Berkeley before leaving science for art. I spoke with him at a live event at Biola University in La Mirada, California. I met with some faculty today and um, talked about how I run into really interesting people from Biola all over the place. Um, this is a I, I very much value this place and its tradition of faith and intellect hand in hand. Um, And so I'm thrilled to be here tonight and thrilled to have Enrique with me as my conversation partner. Um, So let's just plunge right in. You were born in a small town in Cuba into the socialism there of the 1960s. That's a really interesting time and place to be born. Um, Also, that socialism was officially atheist. I wonder how you would describe... Uh, the religious and spiritual background of your childhood there?
1: Um, Cuba was probably the least religious country in Latin America, even mm-hmm. before the Revolution. Yeah. And by 1964, when I was born, there were no churches. Our churches were not really part of the, of the community. My parents sort of held on to their sort of Catholic God, even though it played very little role in, into our lives. And most of the Cubans I knew were into Santeria or Espiritismo, which were all the traditions. Right. And sort of the magic of, of that made the, the challenges of communism, the migration, and all of that more, more, in some ways, more manageable hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. But, but then after that, I went to Spain, which is a little different, and Puerto Rico
0: Right, and how old were you when you left Cuba? I was seven. Okay, I mean, so you were you were quite young, but it also is interesting for me to think about living in a time and place when revolution was a was a living idea. Um, I mean, do, do you think that imprinted you um, even at that young age?
1: Oh yeah, I mean definitely. I mean, th- this was a time that that the revolution was. There were some many problems that we were facing because of the shortage of many things. Yeah. But it's still, the idea that, that this big change has happened around us, there was certain utopian feeling floating in the society still. Yeah. Um, and it was hard not to get touched by that as a kid, even though my parents themselves were against the revolution. But I uh, I was uh, intrigued by it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was hugely aspirational.
1: It was. Yeah. It was. Um, Even for the little town we lived in, Mm -hmm. I think many people still felt that things were possible.
0: Right. You then grew up and seemed to be becoming a physicist. And what I've read is that you went on a five-day retreat in the winter of 1990 at Pigeon Point Lighthouse. And it was after that that you left physics for art. So tell us what happened there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a crisis. Um, so,
0: Did you know you were in crisis when you went there?
1: Um, yeah, uh, that, that, that's why. Um, so, um, you know, physics have been my life in many ways. I was interested in literature and painting since I was very young, mm-hmm. but physics and mathematics were the most exciting things for me. And, I, and when I was a teenager, I had this sense. That they were going to give me the answer to these questions. I always felt that I didn't understand enough about the world and mm-hmm. physics.
0: Did you like invent a laser as in Puerto Rico in high school?
1: I did. I did. I, and I work in a, a research lab, and then I built this laser, and and uh, it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, and I work in a nuclear accelerator at Cornell, then I work at a place called Brookhaven, and I was really destined to do that for Mm -hmm. my life. But as I got older, when I got to Berkeley, I was painting all the time. And what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do was paint, and it got to the point that I really had that crisis. I felt like I had to make a choice. And I went to this lighthouse. I drove down from Berkeley to this lighthouse and uh, ensconced myself in the little house there for five days. And, And when I came out, I drove back to San Francisco knowing I would be an artist although I didn't know what that meant. So I work as a scientist. I dropped out of the doctorate program. I was doing the doctorate and MFA at Berkeley at the same time. I dropped out of both and worked as a scientist trying to build enough money to be able to do things, designing lasers. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then I moved to Oakland and saw my works in the parks in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was next. And that was a terrible time.
0: A terrible time?
1: Yeah, yeah. My, my parents were distraught. I was the oldest in the family. We have been immigrants, quite poor in Spain and so mm-hmm. on. And they, I have always done well in school, and the promise was that I was going to be a successful person. And here I was, having a crazy dream. And,
0: <laughs> and Although I'm, supporting your art habit by building lasers is <laughs> still more impressive than supporting your art habit by being a waiter or something.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it was odd to say to people like what I did sort of with my day job. Um, yep. <laughs> but it also took some credibility out of me being an artist. Um, mm-hmm. When I would say, well, I'm an artist, but I'm also a physicist, that it seemed always like it was a hobby.
0: It seems to me, though, that, that the scientist in you is very much alive in, you, in your approach and philosophy of art in the way you, and in your art. Yeah,
1: you're right. I, it is, it is a life, even though sometimes people don't realize it. I think that one of the most important ways in which it's a life is the treatment I have towards my studio. Mm. Which I approach it not as a factory has become very much the way of artists looking at the studios in the last 40 or 50 years, but rather as a laboratory, as a cross between laboratories and a monastery. That kind of hybrid place. Also, the, inc- the process of inquiry that I used for my work owes a lot to my training as a scientist.
0: How, how's that?
1: Um, when I take on a new project, rather than building up on, on the successes of the past or what I have done before, I go back to the holes of my process, hmm. the things that I didn't understand well and I go into those. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's a very uh, typical thing of scientists to do. Um, I also try to be rigorous and unfriendly towards my own biases and assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I also owe that to physics. My interest in philosophy, I think, comes from physics. And finally, and this is maybe the most important of all the reasons, I think the arts have become extremely apologetic to the sciences, partly because science, science has been so successful over the last 200 years. So I think in many, many of my experiences with academic art and art theory has been the, the tendency to want to be scientific mm-hmm. or pseudo-scientific. And when I came to art, I came to art without apologies, and that gave me a great deal of freedom.
0: Mm. There's even a way that you've described painting that evokes that for me, the, I mean, the craft of it, or the, even the, the way you understand what's going on. You talked about, though, as an observer, we would see painting as something that is happening on a surface with materials. And you said, in an interesting painting, images fight back, and their meanings play hide-and-go-seek with materials. That is such an interesting... I mean, that, just, that, is, that image is going to change the way I look at any painting <laughs> from here on out. Um,
1: well, I mean, I think, I think paintings are, are odd in the sense that it seems to us that everything that is important is on the surface right. and visible. Uh, unlike, say, science, we expect that we have to go in deep to understand what's really at play in an equation or something. Um, but that's very deceiving. I think paintings um, have a complexity, a relationship to presence and reference in the work of art, the tension between what seems to be and what is.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with philosopher and artist Enrique Martinez Salaya. What are you working on right now, just like to tie these ideas to a specific project?
1: So I'm working on a, on a body of work that opens next month in New York, um, or is, I just finished it, and pointing to just before, I did a show called Empires that looked at ambitions and illusions in some manner. And now I'm looking at the aftermath of that. What, what happens after those ambitions have been played out?
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk about some passions and themes that run through your work and through your thinking and writing. The idea of empires. You, you have this phrase... The dialectical friction between the domestic and the epic. I don't know if you did that in the con- if you said that in the context of empires. <laughs> but I mean, here's something you wrote. Um, that you wrote that despite you had an early interest in classic empires like Rome, the empires that matter most to me now are the smaller empires of day-to-day living, constructed by promises and shaped by our drive, our accomplishments and our failures. These are big and small empires built around our hopes and around our scorns, empires of place as well as of memory, or today in the land and of tomorrow in the sea.
1: Yeah, um, I, I was going through a big transformation in my life when I took on this project of empires. Mm-hmm. You know, into this big argument with a Dharma professor what empires are, um, but my my empires, with this this empires that I saw growing up, you know, through sort of my mother's dressers or the dust on top of some book, or, and these kinds of empires that one of the qualities they have is is sort of failure built in, certain futility in the adventure of those those ambitions, and. That dialectic I just spoke about between the epic and the domestic—I think, I think artists are usually artists of the epic or artists of the domestic. But what I'm interested in is the friction between these two spheres—the mm-hmm. the sort of domestic spheres about everyday lives, children, families, are sort of a small goal, so to speak—and sort of these larger movements of time and history and God these kinds of larger ideas. And the two of them rub against each other and that friction between the domestic and the epic is a source of a a lot of my work. So what I'm interested in is always sort of the the small, the small breakings, the small fractures.
0: At risk of, um, you know, stretching this too far, I feel like that friction is so much with us now. And I think national, political level, but also globally. It feels epic, and, and it feels connected to our lives, and yet it's hard to get a handle on that or to know how to be working with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's sometimes a tendency to, to speak in numbers, in terms of numbers or groups. And it, to me, everything always breaks down to the individual, individual suffering individual failure, and no matter what group you belong to, I think that individuality of suffering and possibility and hope is the fundamental building block of human experience. Mm -hmm. And it is that, it is only to that, that art can say anything. Art can say very little about groups or -hmm. general movements. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think consciousness is obviously it's it's one of these epic things, but it runs and it is the theme of philosophy um, It's a special passion of yours right it's a it's something that you that you write about and think about and it makes its way into your art
1: yeah yeah i mean it's, I think I started when I was very young i mean it's a sense of my own sense of lack of missing, always feeling like there was too much fullness to the world, and I understood so little of it. And sort of consciousness is at the center of that awareness. Not to go too far, because that, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but, but there is um, there's a way to look at our works as consciousness.
0: Our Not, works, too.
1: As consci- rather than just be representatives or embodiments of mm-hmm. a consciousness of the producer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they themselves... Having some consciousness that gets animated, open engagement. There's nothing intelligent I can say about it other than a feeling that I have that this is the case.
0: Tell me an example of you experiencing that with a piece of art.
1: Um, you know, I, one of the most obvious examples, I think, and it happens to me every time I encounter any work by Van Gogh, no matter where it is. And the moment I see it, something happens, Some, there's an intelligence at play in the work itself, and a sense of, of something I can only describe as a consciousness in that work that engages me, forces me to be a witness, forces me to be a conversation partner, um, <clears throat> places me in a very unstable place. And, and there's an instability in that exchange that... Um, that is more simply than just looking at a bunch of marks and thinking about Vincent might have made them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and this is a rare thing, I think, but I will, I will suggest that somewhere around that, one could construct a definition of what art is as opposed to an art activity. It's when something has the capacity to embody consciousness in a way that it can be unfolded.
0: And over hundreds of years. Over hundreds of years, yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
1: So maybe this is what art is. Mm.
0: And I think that's an interesting distinction, too, um, that there are works of art that convey that. And there, what did you say? Art activities. Because every, every I don't think you would say also either, that every painting has that consciousness or conveys. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think when you go to a museum and you look around, most works are forever trapped in their moment. In a way that they are completely historical, but mm-hmm. then the great works of art are always ahistorical. This, regardless of the historical condition, they speak to you in the present, right. and that presentness of the work of art is is what I am suggesting mm-hmm. brings about this engagement with consciousness, and mm-hmm. and those things are the work. That mm-hmm. that somewhere around there is that I would try to construct the definition of what art is.
0: Yes. Another theme of yours that recurs is memory. Memory and displacement. Okay, so here's this um, poem, which I think I saw it, because you you have these notebooks that accompany some of your works and exhibits, where you, and they get public, they're really fascinating if you have a chance to see them. They're handwritten, and it's basically the notes you take. It's basically a journal, right? A journal right. Of, the, of the process. So I, I saw this um, written in one of those notebooks with words crossed out, and, and then here it appears all neat and tidy on the page. Um, it was not time or circumstance that displaced your memory, it was concentration. Then the whole house filled with birds flapping their wings, shaping the air into snowballs of sound which they threw against corners, long ago left to silence. The yard, abandoned to weeds, had the flowers of laughter, and the window flickered light over the porcelain fish, which for all time jumped from the dark crystal table. I'm totally fascinated by it was not time or circumstance that displaced your memory, it was concentration and I have no idea what you're saying there (laughs) so please explain (laughs) Um,
1: I think that um, I find that sometimes in my experience of some people and some events the only way to move past them the only way to survive them in some manner is with some sort of sometimes seemingly heroic effort. Um, Almost a practice of forgetfulness that you have to every day wake up again and forget them again and forget them again. Um, Until that practice of forgetting them becomes sort of your everyday thing. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that seemed like a love poem there that you read. But it was a a poem to a moment of my childhood and, and yeah, it was effort
0: it was a hard moment
1: it, it was it was a hard moment not because something happened to me but yeah. because of the fullness of that moment mm-hmm. um, and those conditions and everything that the world around, it, the world of the people around them, the feelings of those things you know it brings together a great deal of memories of um, of departure and so on, and, mm. and who I was and who other people around, and then and required, um, you know, a, a sustained effort mm-hmm. to to not sink into into that place and never come back. And that's ah. the thing with memories. That's the thing with certain circumstances that they are so vast that if you don't keep swimming against that current, it will draw you back and you will never recover.
0: Listen again and share this conversation with Enrique Martinez Zelaya through our website onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Enrique Martinez Celaya, exploring his philosopher and painter's lens on the world we inhabit now. He's also a trained physicist, and I spoke with him at a live event at Biola University, an evangelical institution with a reverence for intellectual rigor and the arts. Another phrase that comes up um, in in your writing and in what people write about is this notion of hinge moments, and I think you just described that, standing before a Van Gogh painting. And actually, I, I recently, I was just, just in Minnesota a week ago, I met a Biola alum who talked about standing in front of one of your paintings, and essentially, she didn't use the phrase hinge moments, but she said I stood there and, and that changed me. I walked away and I was different. And it seems to me that one of your projects that it feels like it was important to you, was your Berlin work, um, Schneebet, that you did for the Berlin Philharmonic, writing about, well, would you just, I mean, it seemed, it was about Beethoven's deathbed, but it was about a lot more than that. Yeah. It's interesting, too, when you write about that period of Berlin, so that's mid-90s Berlin. This was a period before the, so Germany had been reunited, but it was a period before the, Go- the Bonn government relocated to Berlin. There were still bullet holes in a lot of those buildings in East Berlin, which was true when I was there as well. They'd just never been repaired. So the past was just physically alive. Um, and you wrote um, that this project... Considered the end of, or that you know, you were in the midst of the end of an epoch and the consequences of displacement. Um, That Berlin at that time suggested a mood, a way of being, which I had not understood before and still do not understand well. I wondered if you'd say some more about that, because that feels like it was bigger also than that time, that place and time.
1: Um, I mean, I think I think Berlin at that time had this sense of collective memory. It was just a whole city held together um, in the windows. When you look up to those windows, you still feel that you can see that past in those windows. So in many ways, it was my own exploration of my exile. Strangely enough, going Mm. to Germany to find it. Um, But it was was through that to all those desolated houses of Berlin at that time, really, it was—you felt that you were walking through a past yes. that was still half animated, in some manner. And um,
0: did it take you back to that uh, 1960s socialist Cuba in that sense?
1: Oh yeah, it, it did. Yeah. it did, and uh, it did in a way that, by being unencumbered by my own specific history, I could see it with some distance. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, and. And I have to say it was, that language is very resonant for me. I mean, you know, the end of epochs, the beginning of something that you can't quite understand, the consequences of displacement, that's very resonant language for this moment in the 21st century, I feel. Um, I don't know, do you think of it? And I feel like, as you say, you're, the places you've come from, the places you've been, also you, you have a certain perspective on that, that can be useful.
1: I mean, I, I, one, of the, one of the consequences of being an exile um, is that in some ways um, you gain the world in many ways. I, I feel that the freedom that comes with being an exile is, the, is to take all these different ways of looking at these problems of displacement and loss and then incorporate as my own. Mm-hmm. And, Without necessarily trying to tie it up to specifically the q exile xl experience, um, but I do I do feel that there, this is a moment in which the conversation has been narrowed to sort of create this sort of simplistic opposition between locals and and the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that is more complicated than that. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in is to find the strangeness the, in each of us. The, the strangeness. Sort of, the strangeness, the yes. sense of otherness Yes. Um, in us. I mean, I think that we all carry a burden of otherness, mm-hmm. of, mm. of not being a local, so to speak. And I think getting in touch with that will make this simplistic opposition disappear somewhat, mm-hmm. or completely, if we look at it closely enough. Yeah.
0: Um, I'd love to talk about religion and the term religious, how, what that means for you. And I, I think actually where we are, it flows right into that. Um, the way you use the term religious, I see it um, connected to connotations of consciousness, also of an awareness of moral failings, of emotional ambition and seriousness. And I, and I don't um, have a sense, you, it's, this is not something that you overtly speak about or reckon with.
1: So the religion of my, of my childhood, um, I had a contentious relationship to that religion of my childhood. But even though I had a contentious relationship with it, it mattered to me. I want art to do what religion does for my parents Mm. and for people who are believers. Um, A certain inquiry into truth, a certain clarifying force in one's life, a certain guide. And that's how I have approached it. And, and, And that's why I sometimes react when when people ask me what the work is about, I mean, nobody asks what religious experience is about. Right. They just, if they ask something, it's how does it come about? And, and I think, um, I find sort of like Wittgenstein that even though I myself not religious, I look at life from a religious point of view. Mm. That the questions that people usually address in religion are the ones I want to think about and talk about not only in my work, but, but in my
0: work. Hmm. Yeah, I was, what was it? Um, oh, you know, when we were talking earlier on about your idea of a painting, that their meanings, images fight back and their meanings play hide and go seek with materials, it seems to me that it's kind of a, a way to move through the world, also seeing meaning that is playing hide-and-seek with materials. Yeah. I mean, as you say, you, that's you as an artist, but it's also, um, as you just said, it also describes a religious way of moving through the world.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, uh, and there is a, there's a secret in all things, and that secret that is in everything you know in my shoe and everything that there is i think makes life and reality and the moment so full so vast that only the kinds of attitudes that people describe as a sort of religious attitudes have the possibility of of approaching that fullness mm-hmm. um, with any kind of Sincerity and with any kind of possibility of getting anywhere.
0: You you sometimes say that artists should be prophets, and then you often qualify it in saying minor prophets at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like the way you you define that because you don't define it as being mystical. Um, you say you said you wrote an, you actually did a lecture in two thousand nine called the Prophet, and you drew on Pushkin and Khalil Gibran, and you wrote. The prophet is not a martyr or mystic who seeks transcendence, but one who turns humbly and curiously towards the world.
1: I mean, I think there is a tendency, um, not just in our moment. I mean, Kierkegaard made the distinction between the apostle and the genius, you know, 170 years ago. But, But there's a tendency for us to think that to, to be a prophet or to do anything grand, you have to have a special gift, be someone called for. And I think ultimately what really matters is the resolve to want to do it, to give your life to, to that which you consider important. And, and if you have no skills to offer or nothing special to offer, it's all the more amazing that you do it, the more remarkable. And I think that resolve is all that really matters. And, and in a specific case of art, I think the notion that to bring the future forward by throwing yourself desperately, I think desperation is, is part of what I consider a profit to have. Mm-hmm. Once you have made that resolve, to launch yourself forward, then desperation is the only the only factor urgency desperation there 's no um, no way to like calculate and The reason I made the distinction between minor profit is because i 'm not trying to put any capital letters here or trying to say that you 're going to be remembered as such mm-hmm. because it really doesn 't matter it 's a private journey that no one needs to really know about.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with philosopher and artist Enrique martinez Salaya. whisper a lot? Do you know that? In your I, writing? I didn't know that. <laughs> the whisper of the order of things. Again, like the order, and then yeah. you, you said somewhere, the whisper is faint, but the best art helps us to hear it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why I use whisper is because maybe maybe I have, I have little ears. Um, but it seem, it seems that both in science and art and anything, in anything, um, the truth are not screaming that much. Um, and I think that you have to be attentive, silent enough, be able to look and listen very, very carefully. And, if, and, it, and even then, you have to be very lucky to hear something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but when you do hear something, um, is transformative, and that order of things that 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 more stable reality underneath the appearance that we mm. of things um, is um is life changing so and i think scientists will will say that 's the case and and i think poets and i think theologists i mean i think mm-hmm. i think everybody agrees that truth is um requires some suppressing of other things to see it.
0: Hmm. It's interesting to ponder that um, and also because we're all so trained to be, really to be noisy, right? To raise our voices and to think of truth, real truth as something that we'll be whispering and so that part of the way we have to let it into the world or attend to it is to be more quiet, more gentle.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't lend itself naturally to many of what we hear in the culture as a whole. Um, and I think we are challenged, in the, and especially, I would say, even more so, the younger, my kids are challenged by all these yeah. demands, to the point that to, to even talk about something that exists underneath all that like a rustle of leaves or something mm-hmm. underneath that whole scandal.
0: Or the whisper of the order of things. Or the whisper <laughs> of the
1: order of things. Yeah. That, that is, um, is something that not only sounds foreign, but the kind of concentration and, and also the kind of giving up of many of the things we hold dear and we have been taught to love and, and demand and wish for and crave, is a tall order.
0: Um, this is something kind of completely different, but we just have a few more minutes and I, I do want to ask you about this. You, um, and I, I don't really know the story here, but it sounds like you've moved, you've kind of moved away from and towards color in your life. and I mean, you've kind of moved away from color and re-embraced it after the birth of your children in a new way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I started as an apprentice for a painter, very sort of traditional paintings. And in the late 80s, I destroyed all my paintings. I burned them, and I felt that, um, I, you know, physically, like, actually burned them. I felt like I had to build painting from the ground up. And I think eliminating color. I eliminated out of my painting anything that anybody have ever said that I was good at. So if I was good at drawing, I took it out. If I was told I was you know, had facility with color, I took it out. And then I said, well, if I give up all these things, what is painting for me? So I'm very interested in the in the idea of being anti-facile in some ways, rejecting what comes naturally, or rejecting mm. pleasure. Mm. So then I, I worked in black paintings for a long time, although black is so seductive that in itself is a problem. Right. Um, so, um, so, 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 it's too easy to be fetishistic about the rejection itself. Right. So so I was fortunate to have children. And when they came, it w- along with them, it came the reinvention of a new way of working to make sure that I was not getting too too comfortable in that other way. And then with them, it came came color over tar paintings, of all things. And um, it's still muted. I cannot... Make it a, a big triumphant return to color because it is relatively muted still, yeah. but um but it is there
0: I was, uh, was thinking when I read that um, uh, I interviewed um, a few years ago a physicist, Arthur Zants, who's worked a lot with Goethe, who we think of as a poet, but in fact really thought of himself more as a scientist, and that he, he that Goethe defined uh, colors as the deeds and sufferings of light. Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah, I mean all, all all, colors, I mean, really, all colors are just basically, I mean, light is the same thing, whether it's a red or a green, just slight shifts will make one into the other, yeah. depending on how you move in speed and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, My kids are very interested in color, and they ask me all the time about it, and they cannot believe that I think brown is a nice color, for example. Um,
0: This is why we have children. They set us straight.
1: Um, But but I think think that there's an emotional relationship that colors can bring about, and and paintings are intricately connected to, to the notion of not absolute color, but local color. Colors in relationship with one another. Mm. And I find this to be uh, a profound part of the encounter of with paintings. And the colors of paintings are always insignificant or relatively lame compared to nature.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, a lot of the great things of paintings is the constraint, the limitations. I mean... That's what makes them a creative enterprise. It's the constraints. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about art as freedom when, in fact, it is the constraints that allow the possibility of art to, to happen. And color constraint under the pressures of, of these relatively small dimensions is, um, is beauty under compression, which is always an, an exuberant form of beauty.
0: Mm. Um, this is a final detour but you have such an interesting view of um, and you wrote about this, about photography and you wrote about this a lot in your Berlin experience and it strikes me because now and like for people in this generation and our children photography is something, it's a momentary activity it's almost synonymous with seeing taking a picture Um, and you talked about, I hear whispers again, photographs whisper that to look at them is to lose or overhear something, that the chemistry of photography holds grief as a potential. I just think this is so interesting to think about memory and mourning, Um, that there's so much going on in pictures, so much more meaning than we attribute now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that when people look, say, at a portrait of somebody, we always think that what what we're saying is that person is no longer. But in fact, it's it's the other way. It's is us that do not exist for that photograph. Oh. And as such, <laughs> and as such, there is a grief, a mourning mm. of the loss mm. of. Um, always built into a photograph. Oh, on my painting table, I have a photograph of Robert Frost with some Carol. And Carol, many years after that photograph, Carol in the photograph, Carol is maybe 13. Many years later, Carol committed suicide. Mm-hmm. There, and I have that photograph with two apples from Robert Frost's orchard on my painting table. And I look at it every day. And I think that photograph knew everything that was to come, sort of in the leaning of of Carol, or his father, um, the future was there. And and I look at it every day to figure out if I can catch it, in which part of it. So then, three inches away, I have a picture of my son and I. It's still unfolding. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I'm trying to understand how that photograph, who tells me that I don't exist for it, is holding sort of all that will be in this place and i think that's what photographs can do mm. in some ways and and like many other things by taking so many photographs by having it in our phones um we we don't look at them carefully enough
2: mm-hmm.
1: so and in fact they have become sort of a testament of having lived when in fact what co- photographs do is say you're no longer. So <laughs> This is
0: too deep for <laughs> 9 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so a simple, actually a ridiculous question to end, but um, the question is really how you would start answering this question of through the life you've lived and the work you do, the way you walk through the world, as a scientist slash artist slash philosopher, how would you start to answer the question? How you think now about what it means to be human? How your sense of that has evolved to this at this point? I think
1: the thing that is most pressing that comes up when you ask that question is um, is compassion. I think not because it comes naturally, but because it doesn't to me. And, um, and I find that at this age with four kids and with a world that um, everywhere one turns, and not just in the news, in, in just about every encounter, with every, every person is carrying something. And I think what, what I'm reminded constantly is to be human, is to be aware of that more than intelligence more than anything else Um, and it's increasingly urgent and increasingly hard to remember that
0: Mm. I like I like how you describe it also not as a quality but as a work in progress
1: yeah it it is a work in progress um, this morning I I was seeing uh, a man eating from a garbage can in halfway between Brentwood and Bel Air, mm. two expensive neighborhoods of Bel and everybody, you know, driving by and so on, and, and, um, and I was thinking, what will it take for somebody to stop and do something about it? But nobody did, and I didn't. And I think that our familiarity with those images and our capacity to survive them, to move on, is is remarkable to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself to be a um, a hopeful person? Is hope a word you use?
1: I don't. I don't. I, I think hope hope is in some ways sort of a, a heroic human quality especially in light of what, of what life sometimes brings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But perhaps it's the best thing we have to, um, to sort of have the heroism of waking up in the morning brushing our teeth and, and saying, you know, that something will be possible. That being said, I don't describe myself as hopeful. I think, um, I think hope is, a, is another of those works in progress. You know, and, and some for some people it seems amazing that they can sustain hope against atrocities and you know, oppression and so many horrible things. But it's also amazing when people are hopeful when they have a menial job they hate or or a terrible family life. Mm-hmm. And then somehow still have this this Remarkable human capacity to still think that tomorrow will be better. There's a certain wonderful thing, and also a terrifying thing—a denial of the present that comes with hope. Um, and sometimes that—that's the only thing we have. But I—I uh, I turn that one around constantly in my head.
0: Mm. Well, Enrique martinez Zelaya thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Enrique Martinez Zelaya is the Provost Professor of Humanities and Arts at the University of Southern California. His many books include On Art and Mindfulness, published by Whale and Star Press, an imprint he founded in 1998 to publish works of art, poetry, and critical theory. being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Bethany Mann, Selena Carlson, Carolyn Friedhoff, and Katherine Kwong. Special thanks this week to Tessa Blumenberg at Enrique Martinez Celaya's studio, and to Jonathan Anderson, Nyla Osline, Kenny Miller, Chris Irwin, President Barry Corey, and the rest of the wonderful people at Biola University. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowerment, healthy and fulfilled lives and the Lilly Endowment an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders interests in religion community development and education on being is
2: distributed by PRX the Public Radio Exchange and is a Krista Tippett public production